Okay, hello everyone. Um, has everyone got a handout? Just need a handout. And we, we all need a liturgy book, so if you haven't got one, if you um, maybe we could grab a few from the back, um, please, if possible. Okay, everyone got a handout, liturgy book? Everyone got one of these? Okay. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, welcome to Understanding the Liturgy, part two. Uh, before we start, I'm sure everyone's heard of the uh, unfortunate passing of uh, His Grace Bishop Epiphanius on Sunday. His Grace was actually at St. Mary's two weeks, to t- two weeks ago to today. And from what I gather, I think that was his last lecture or sermon outside of his monastery before he passed away. So he was only here two weeks ago. He passed away on Sunday. His funeral is actually starting within the next half an hour. Um, I don't know. Did anyone get to attend his talk when he was here? Lovely man. He's he's the Bishop of St. Macarius Monastery. He's a disciple of Father Matthew the Paul. Um, As a layperson, he was a disciple of a, a very holy bishop by the name of Bishop Ioannis of Garbeya. Some people might know him. He wrote um, the book, The uh, Paradise of the Spirit, which is translated by St. Shiru the Monastery in those small books. It's like green, sacramental life, and there's like a grey one, a life of virtues, etc. So he was his disciple. He was a monk from 1984. And from then until now, even as a bishop, he was the monastery librarian. So he came to Melbourne twice. He really liked everyone in Melbourne. He uh, seemed to... Um, every, when he, the first time he came, he came for a clergy conference and he stayed for a week. And of course, all the fathers fell in love with him. He, um, uh, he's originally a doctor, but when he went to monastery, he started working as a, as a librarian. He really got into his research and he's actually published several books of very high caliber on a range of issues or a range of themes like biblical themes, liturgy, he actually just, he told us right before he boarded the plane to Melbourne, he handed into the print shop at his monastery, they have a print shop, um, a translation of the book of Isaiah from Greek to Arabic. So you know how big the book of Isaiah is. He translated it in the Septuagint from Greek to Arabic. So he's very, very, very well respected. Unfortunately, he passed away on, uh, on Sunday. So the funeral is now. Um, so... I thought I might... It's on my phone, that part. Um, so, I found a couple of things that we, maybe we could share about him before we start. So, um, his mum passed away a few years ago, right? And, of course, he received condolence messages from many people. But then, this one of my friends, older friends, who's a layperson, sent him a message of condolence, okay? And he... And th- that person sent... A condolence message, say, Your Grace, deepest sympathies for the passing of your mum. So then he replied, I want to send this message to all who sent a message to me, even the bishops. We never send a message of condolence to a monk because in monastic life it is a shame. So pray for me just to finish my duties and depart without blemish. It's the type of person he was. Um, uh, when we... Um, I'll just plug this in. In January, um, a couple of us were very lucky to go 
to St. Macarius Monastery and spend the day with him. Um, and we thought, okay, he's the bishop of a monastery. It might be very hard to meet him or spend some time with him. Maybe he might give us 20 minutes of his time and then off, off we go. He was there from the beginning. He was dressed as a monk. You couldn't actually tell he was a bishop. So there's a lot of lay people that were just visiting and they just greeted him like you would greet a priest. But you couldn't tell he was a bishop. He actually lived um, the same lifestyle after becoming a bishop. He didn't change his cell. He actually told all the monks to stop, you, um, to, to not say any of the hymns that you would say for a bishop. So usually when a bishop enters a church, he would say a hymn, in his monastery he banned that hymn. He said that hymn, no hymns of, for the bishop, you, you treat me as you would um, a monk. And um, we spent the whole day with him and we ate with him and we asked him all our questions and he was very hospitable which is very nice considering that he's the bishop of the monastery he must be very busy but I remember um, while we were there we said to him oh we heard of this hermit um, that we would love to visit if possible and he goes sure let's go so went for a walk visited the hermit um, it was lovely and then all of us were very touched by the spirit of this particular monastery because his grace and Bepifanius and the, the hermit that we met and another monk who is a, um, one of the disciples of Father Matthew the Poor, who's a very dear friend of uh, Bepifanius, we're all very peaceful, very gentle, very joyful. You know, like, um, you know when, when you're in someone's presence and you feel like something's happening to you because you're in their presence? Like, joy, like by osmosis, like joy is rubbing off peace. That's what it felt like. And I, I thought that to myself until one of the abunas who picked him up, Sayyidna, this time, said, I just feel like when I'm driving in the car with him, something's happening, right? Anyway, I, so we turned to Sayyidna after we saw, after we saw this uh, hermit, and we said to him, we're like, this is beautiful, but we have to go back, <laughs> you know? We have to go back to Melbourne, to busy suburbia. It seems like you all have this joy and this peace and we seem like we're missing out. So one may think that he will reply to that with some lovely poetic comment on how, yes, it's nice you're in a monastery, but you're disadvantaged because you're in the world. Do what you can. You're not a monk. Tough luck. But he didn't reply at, at, at all. He, um, I guess I said, no, in, I said in Arabic, peaceful. can we all be peaceful and joyful like you? And without any hesitation, all humility, he replied, he goes, yeah, wa akhtar kaman, in English, with, so that expression, yeah, like just means like, a, like definitely, definitely more than what we have. Okay? So he said that as people here in Melbourne with work or uni, busy lives, we could have more than what they have. And he said, because the only thing that you need for any of this stuff is Christ. And Christ is everywhere. He is within. Everything will be okay. So he had this lovely, um, joyful simplicity that was very deep. He, if you realize in the sermon last two weeks ago, his voice crackled and he didn't know was he clearing his throat. And he actually does that every single time he lectures. Whenever he brings up, he told us, whenever he brings up one of two themes, he can't help. He's, he's on the verge of tears. And he was in the car with us when we were dropping him off and he was explaining a story and he was like, you could see the tears coming down his, his face. Whenever he speaks about love, so God's love or a loving act that someone did to someone else, or whenever he speaks about injustice, so how someone was treated badly, you see him, um, you could see his voice cracking, he's actually uh, about 
uh, he's on the verge of tears. And I think everyone that met him in Melbourne was very affected by what he said. The Pope, um, put, there was a lovely video on Facebook, you would have seen, of the Pope speaking very affectionately about him and saying that wherever he went to represent the Coptic Church, he always left a very good impression, not only by, because of the words that he says, but by the grace that he carries by his presence. There's a, um, there's a quote on the, on the top here that I've put by him. So a couple of us, um, a couple of the abonas um, asked him after the symposium, we said, Sayedna, do you mind if we come and see you? Just to sit with you, <laughs> get your blessing. Oh, of course, come anytime, just come. So we went to where he was staying, made us a cup of tea, sat with him for two hours. right? And when you're sitting with him, you just feel like you're sitting with like a dad, you're like your dad, you know, very fatherly. He had the gift of fatherhood and he had the gift of making sure that whoever walked out always felt uplifted and hopeful. And he wasn't a complicated man. He was very deep, but not complicated. He was very, very joyful and hopeful in his, his words. And we asked him, like, about the liturgy. We said, you're in your monastery, we realize that your liturgy is just like, we say it's heaven on earth, and you, you go there and you actually see it, the way that the monks actually treat the church and they treat the altar. And we asked him, so what advice do you have to us um, in terms of the liturgy? What should we do? So he said this over here. Something very simple. If you want to experience the kingdom of heaven in the liturgy, preserve the sanctity and respect of the place. That's all he said. Right? If you want to experience the kingdom of heaven in the liturgy, preserve the sanctity and respect of the place. And then he said something beautiful. He said, outward reverence brings inward reverence. And you actually see this lived out in their monastery. Right? For example, in their monastery, before the, the curtain is opened, if a monk enters, he will do three full prostrations in front of the sanctuary. But if he enters after the curtain is open, he will just do the three prostrations at the back. It might be like a big deal. But in many other places, there's a lot of movement. In their monastery, there's barely any movement. For example, on a Sunday, you see we have a lot of deacons in white, a lot of deacons in the sanctuary. When there's, for example, a clergy, a lot of priests, everyone's wearing white, and that's why you see some abunas will go up, and they'll say like half a section, and the next abuna will say the next half. In his monastery, it's only two people in the sanctuary wearing white, two priests, so the bishop and one more priest, and two deacons wearing white, and everyone else is in black. And you could hear a pin drop. He really emphasized this, and this connects to a little bit of what we were saying last week. A couple more stories about this. When he, um, when he was a monk, he was... Uh, in, he was at a conference in um, a Coptic conference in Europe, so an academic conference, and he went to present a paper. And there were many bishops and priests from Egypt also attending this conference. And they asked him, "Come and attend the liturgy with us on Sunday." And he said, "Look, our monastic principles are: we'll just wait until we go back to our monastery, and we'll pray the liturgy there." And they kept pushing us, "Okay, I'll attend, but I can't. I'm not going to dress in white because our principles for our monastery is we don't vest." outside of our monastery. So he stood there. And I think this was the first time he left the monastery for a liturgy in a really long time. And what he saw made him... He, his custom is he just crosses his arms, closes his eyes and doesn't open for the rest of the liturgy um, if he's not praying, the, the actual, the, he's not, if he's not offering the sacrifice. And what he saw really upset him. What did he see? He saw people 
with their phones taking photos. He saw deacons speaking in the sanctuary. He saw even some priests speaking in the sanctuary. He saw a lot of movement. And he said, I burst into tears. And the whole liturgy, I couldn't hold myself. And people saw him. And people went and like, like they were very affected, um, very affected by that. Uh, and I think he, he lived that out. So I think something that I, I thought we'd start off today with that quote. I think it's nice if we, um, there's a lovely photo of him at St. Mary's because we prayed Vespers last year here. Maybe if we could uh, put that quote next to his photo and put it up in the deacon's vestry. I think that would be nice. Just to remind us of uh, this line here. If you want to experience the kingdom of heaven in the liturgy, preserve the sanctity and the respect of the place. So it's it's about treating the temple, the church, the sanctuary with utmost respect. And he really, and you, you could see that in his monastery. Um, I'll give you one last story. In his monastery, when the priest says, lead us throughout the way into your kingdom, you know, at the end, all the monks in order of consecration as monks would enter from the side altar door and congregate around the main sanctuary. Right? And when the fraction came, when the priest is fractioning the body of Christ, he said all the older monks that have preserved this tradition wouldn't even raise their eyes to look at the altar. They would just be like this the whole time. That's how much reverence they had. He would even say there's a particular priest there who, when it's his turn to pray the liturgy, he can't sleep the night before. He's just up all night. He can't put himself to bed. Right? He said to us, if the church, if our churches in the world, in the world, implement this, he said, watch what will happen to the church. See, sometimes we try re- reverse it, right? So, for example, if you see, like, um, youth leaving the church, what do we do? Let's try fix youth meeting. Or you see teenagers going off, or you see people not coming to church, you try fix the, the program, right? But I think the pyramid's upside down. If Sunday morning is what it's supposed to be, if the congregation is praying, not attending, if we all, each and every one of us examines themselves and is praying, and if someone walks into the church who hasn't come to our church before and attends the liturgy and says, wow, it's not a, we're not talking about a performance, I'm talking about real prayer, and you, you, that's not something that we could fake, that's something that you could actually taste. Maybe it will impact all these other things in a way that's beyond our understanding. And you could see it in his monastery. And I'm sure as time goes along, more stories will come out about him. You, there's some beautiful quotes that have already been posted on Facebook um, uh, that, uh, attributed to him. Okay. So, let's continue. What, what we got up to last week. So, we got up to the part where the priest washes his hands. We, we looked at how the priest sets up the altar. We looked at um, the prayer of preparation of the priest. We also spoke about how um, what we're going to do is not look at a symbolic interpretation of everything because symbolism sometimes comes from contemplation, which is not wrong, but we could, it could shift our focus for what's, from what's actually happening. And we gave an example. Candles around the gospel, we say angels, Jesus is the light of the world. However, they originated from a practical function, which is... There was no electricity. You need some light. So what do you do? You light a candle. The priest washes his hands twice. He used to wash it once. The second time he washes it because between the first and the second time he's 
putting incense, he's holding the censer, and your hands could get like some, some dirt on it. So he washes it a second time, but originally he would wash it once. So sometimes it's contemplations that we add to things. But what how I will say it is maybe I'll use the words, this can remind us of this. So candles remind us that Jesus is the light of the world. We don't want to say that this exists because of that. Okay? I want to start off by defining two words that are commonly used, and these um, translations are taken from Father Alexander Schmemann. So two common two words that we use over time in the liturgy, Amin and Alleluia. So what's Amin mean? Amin means so be it. It's a solemn acknowledgement and acceptance by the people of God of the reality, the truth, the strength of what God has done and is still doing. Each prayer, each exclamation and liturgical act are sealed by this Amin of the people. And one can truly say that a Christian is the one who has the right to say Amin, that is, to receive and to make his own what God gives him in the church. So, for example, we say Amin after the creed. What does that mean when we say Amin after the creed? It means that, yes, we agree with what we just said. right? Um, at the end of the liturgy, the priest says, The holy body and the precious, and the tr- precious true blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of our God, Amin. So he's saying, this is the holy body, this is the true blood, Amin, like Yes, it is. So be it. True. And then what do the people reply? Yes. Amen. True. And then at the end when he says the confession, Amen, Amen, Amen. Yes, it's it's true, it's true, it's true. I believe that it's true. And he says, I believe, I believe, I believe. It's really emphasizing this point that this is the true body and the true blood of Jesus Christ. That's what Amen means. Alleluia in free translation means God is here. Praise Him. It's a joyful exclamation of those who see and experience the presence of God. And it's one of the key words of the liturgy because it reveals the very nature of worship. To bring bring us into the presence of God. So, Alleluia brings to mind joy. Okay, just footnote that for a second. We're going to come back to that in, um, in a little bit. Okay. So last week, remember we said there's a hymn that we, the deacons, say, uh, the, the, the congregation sing, sorry, that you could find on page 101. It's the first hymn the, deacon, the congregation says on page 101. Okay, page 101. If you don't, has everyone got handouts? Yep, there's liturgy books at the back if you need any. This hymn, Ten U Osht, beautiful hymn. And if you read the words, We worship the Father of light and His only begotten Son and the Spirit, the Paraclete, the Trinity, one in essence. It's the first thing that the congregation says in the liturgy. So what, what does this show us very uh, straight away? That the first thing the congregation does is glorify the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you've got your own liturgy book, you could put a triangle next to every time you see any reference to the Holy Trinity. If you actually see, if you go through the whole divine liturgy of the Coptic Church, you'll find that from cover to cover, it's a glorification of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. From the first sentence here to the end of the communion hymn. You know, Jefez, Maro, Oth, for blessed is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the perfect Trinity. And then... The last hymn, Amen, Alleluia, Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Sabbath. Everything is a glorification of the Holy Trinity. 
That's the core or the, one of the, the key features of the Coptic liturgy, the glorification of the Holy Trinity. Try count today alone. And we're just going to get to right before the Thanksgiving prayer. How many times we mention the Holy Trinity? I forgot to mention last week that uh, prior to the washing of the hands, we pray the hours of the Agbeya, or formerly known as the Horologion. The Agbeya, everyone knows the Agbeya? The Agbeya is originally a monastic text, but it's made its way into our liturgy here. Okay? I've put a little table for you to tell you which hours we pray on certain days. Because you may come to a midweek liturgy and realize that we're praying different hours of the Agbeya than what you're used to on a Sunday. If it's a non-fasting day, yes? Sorry, what's the purpose of the Agbeya? So the Agbeya origi- no, originally was prayed in the monasteries. That's part of their, um, their prayer rule. And it was prayed before their liturgy. And then it made its way somehow into our liturgy in the world. What, what is it? Okay, so, so before the liturgy, how do I answer that one? Um, the point. Let's look at the monastery. So the monastery would be praying the Agbeya anyway. They'll be praying the hours. They'll be praying the third and the sixth hours. And then they have a liturgy. So they would be praying the hours, the Psalms, prior to the liturgy. So for example, uh, the third and the sixth hours. The sixth hour is 12 o'clock. So if they have the morning liturgy, they will be praying the Psalms before their morning liturgy. So, for example, the um, the midnight um, tazbeha, midnight praises, that's centered around the midnight service, the three midnight services of the Agbeya. The of, uh, raising of incense in matins, that's centered around the first hour of the Agbeya. If it's a Saturday, a Sunday, or a non-fasting day, we pray the third and the sixth hours, because usually the liturgy would finish before 12 o'clock, which is the sixth hour. If it's... Uh, Jonas fast, Lent, or the Paramon. The Paramon is a preparation day before the Feast of Nativity and the Feast of Epiphany. Then we pray all the hours of the Agbeya. Why is that? Because those days are stricter fasting days where, the, especially in monasteries, people would fast until sunset from food. So if they're going to celebrate the Divine Liturgy at 6pm, that corresponds to the 12th hour. So they'll do all the Agbeya. That's why if you attend a liturgy in Lent, we do the whole Agbeya apart from the midnight service. All other fasting days, such as the fast of St. Mary, the fast of the Apostles, the fast of, um, uh, of Nativity, we would it's a less strict fast, so we would only go until the ninth hour. Usually, the Psalms should be, well, they should be prayed when the gifts are here, the bread and the wine. The, in Passion Week, uh, so in every hour of the Agbeya, apart from the first, you have 12 Psalms. The hours of Passion Week have 12 Thok Tetigoms. The, each Thok Tetigom replaces the Psalms. That's, uh, that's, that's the explanation that we were told. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also the, the Psalms in Passion Week focus on what we're focusing on that day or that week. But then, for example, you finish Good Friday, and between Good Friday and Bright Saturday, you're supposed to do all 150 psalms. So we go home after Good Friday, 
and grab a bite to eat and come back to church. But if you want to do the whole rite properly, you start Good Friday on Friday, you finish Golgotha, and then every per- and then out loud you say Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, and you get to Psalm 150, you finish Psalm 150, and then while you're in church, the priest opens the curtain and they start singing Psalm 151, and then you start Bright Saturday. I know one church in Australia that after Good Friday finishes, the youth take it in turns to pray the 150 Psalms out loud. And they, they don't leave church. So you'll pray if you need a bite, you'll just go out, come back, and someone else will do Psalm 2 until you get to. We, we, we could do that next year. If, any, <laughs> if, any, I'm, if anyone's keen, I'm keen. That would, be, that would be lovely. Okay. Then he washes his hands. Let's turn the page. I'll come back to, to that part in a second the, the bishop and the priest. Okay. So then we, now we get to the offertory. During the offertory, um, now I'll speak about this cautiously because there is someone who lectures at our college online. His name is Ramos. He just finished his PhD on this and he's going to be coming to Melbourne, God willing, next July to run like an intensive on the liturgy. He's like a liturgy whiz. He's in Germany now um, doing some research. He's, he's like, he's just really, really good. Um, but he just did his PhD on this and he found some really beautiful things. Um, but one thing that he said that stuck um, in my mind, during the offertory, what do we sing? Everyone knows this. When the, priest, when, when the bread is offered to the priest, what do we sing? Yes. Lord have mercy. How many times? 41 times. So what does that bring to mind? The 41 times, 39 whips, two of the wounds, brings to mind the passion of Christ. right? And it makes the offertory connected to the passion, which is not wrong. But originally, you wouldn't, the Egbeya wasn't connected to this part. What was connected to this part was the first word of the hymn that you sing after the offertory. You know, Alleluia, five, it's Alleluia. And the hymn is called Adlil Urban. Beautiful hymn. It goes for about 10 minutes. It's all vows, it's all ah, okay, until the last 30 seconds. Has anyone heard it? It's one of the most beautiful hymns in the church, right? Originally, you would actually start singing it from the moment the priest starts to um, set up the altar and during the offertory. Why? Because the offertory was seen as a joyful celebration, not connected to the passion. Not that connecting it to the passion is wrong, but originally the offertory was seen as a joyful celebration. But I won't talk too much about that because I just read that like two days ago in his, at the end of one of his articles, but maybe um, I'll try to see if I could get permission to print it and share it with you because it's, it's really, really interesting. All right. So we're going to now look at the offertory. Okay. The liturgy, the divine liturgy, has two main parts. The liturgy of the word or catechumens and the liturgy of the believers. The liturgy of the word originally didn't have the offertory in it. So what we do now, the offertory at the beginning, that used to be in the middle. That came in the middle 500 years ago. Why? I'm not too sure. But someone someone does know, so I'll try to find out. But 500 years ago, the offertory was moved from the middle to the beginning. What used to happen is that the gifts were prepared on a side altar, and then in the middle of the liturgy, there was a big procession. We would bring the gifts in. Uh, so the liturgy of the word was where the readings were. And anyone could attend that. You didn't have to be baptized. Then after that, the deacon would proclaim, the doors, the doors. And if you're not baptized, you would leave. 
the doors would be locked and the liturgy of the faithful would begin. The liturgy of the faithful has the offertory in it. And there's a hint to that in our current liturgy. When the deacon says, offer, offer, offer in order. What's he talking about? Offer your gifts. How do we know that? Because he's lifting, or one of the hints to that, he's lifting a huge cloth off the altar. What's this cloth called? Prosperin, which is a Greek word for offering. Okay? So he's lifting the cloth of offering, and they used to say that the deacon would go around with that cloth of offering and you would put your gifts because everyone had to come to church with a gift. But we'll talk about that in a second. What I'll do is I'll explain what the priest does and then we'll come back and look at what it means and some of the lessons that we could take from it. So, can I get two deacons? Three, as volunteers, please. Dave? Madhari? Markak? Okay. We'll try to do a side on view. All right? So at this point, the altar, I'm not going to set up the altar again like last week, but the altar would be um, would be ready. So they don't have to take pictures again. So then a deacon, so we'll do side on view. So usually it'll be like this, but we'll just do that. So Matari could hold this. So a deacon would present the basket of bread to the priest. One deacon will be on this side, you could be the wine deacon and you could be the water deacon. We'll just get candles to make it specific. Okay? So just swap hands. Right hand. Okay. Alright. Now, right before this, the people will be saying, We exalt you, the mother of true light, introduction to the creed, and then the creed, because that comes at the end of the Akbaya. During that, the priest would prostrate to the altar and then he'll prostrate to the people and say, I have sinned. Or he'll go to the priest first, his fellow priest. I have sinned, absolve me. And then to the people, I have sinned, forgive me. And then he will grab the sorry, he would grab the veil. If you remember last week, there was a triangle veil over the pattern. He will grab it and he'll place it in his in his sleeve. Okay? And then he'll stand. Now, the two deacons will stand like this, but they'll just stand at a bit of an angle so you could see. But usually, sorry, Maka, <laughs> he'll be here. No, you, you could stand this way, yeah? Now, why is, it, why is his hands crossed? Any guesses? So under the cross, any other guesses? Sorry? No, no. He might get tired. <laughs> any other reason? So if you, if you look at it, he's, he's standing like this, right? If he unlocked his hands... Okay, and I'm moving, uh, my hands are going to burn. So, simply cross. But this is a typical example of how you could say, it reminds me of such and such. But this deacon doesn't need to cross his hands because the water's right here. <laughs> uh, usually we do everything with our right. Yeah, and that's actually a good point. We even, we even when we enter the sanctuary, we try enter the right side with our right foot first and exit from the left side with our left foot first and that's a pharaonic tradition that's made its way into the church. Uh, from what I understand, it's a pharaonic... It's a, but you could add something. Christ took us from here or going anti-clockwise, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It reminds us of that, but it's, it, I think it's dangerous to obsess about the symbolism because it makes us forget of who's on the altar. So... Um, 
Even in the liturgy book, it says the priest will enter with his right foot first, put a spoon of incense and exit with his left foot first. So that's a, a pharaonic tradition. And then the priest will stand. So Marco will, so they can put the wine here. It has to be wine. It can't be non-alcoholic. If it's non-alcoholic, it's not wine. Right? It has to be wine. At a time in Egypt, when in, during the Arab invasion, where uh, we weren't allowed to make wine, they used to get sultanas and press them and soak them in water. And that's how you would make the, the communion wine. And for some reason, in some places in Egypt, that tradition exists. But it, it, it's really not clean, as clean as actual wine, because you get a lot of sediment at the bottom. Um, so that's why a lot of... Yeah, going down a rabbit hole, <laughs> let's change. <laughs> the priest will stand and he'll say, We ask you, a Lamb of God who carries the sin of the world, to hear us and have mercy upon us. And he will open, he will take off the cloth. Now in the basket, sorry Madhari, a bit of an angle, you would find the the bread, the gifts, right? There's either three, five, or seven, or nine, an odd number, right? I think everyone, does everyone know the symbolism? Maybe I'll say it just in case. So we have a stamp. The middle cross represents Christ. Twelve smaller crosses represent the twelve disciples. Around in Greek, you have holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal. Five holes represent the five wounds of Christ. One, two, three, four, and they consider the feet to be one. Five. Okay? So, holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal. The middle part represents Christ. It's called the despotikon. Despota means master in Greek. Um, and then you've got the twelve crosses around representing the twelve disciples. has to be made only of three ingredients. Flour, yeast, and water. Made in a room called Bethlehem. And the person making it should be praying the 150 Psalms as he makes it. Some people put a tape on, which is a new thing. But in the monasteries in Egypt, the monks, the novices do it, and the novices need to learn all the psalms. So if you actually go to the monastery, you find the, the novice making the, the bread and the psalms just off by heart. Like no book, just bam, one, one after the other. <laughs> okay? So they're presented to him, and then the congregation starts saying, Lord have mercy, or Alil Urban. Okay? And then the priest grabs the cruet of wine, puts it against the candle to make sure that it's clear and it's clean. He smells it and then he makes the other deacon smell it. And if it smells good, they should say in Arabic, Gayr Karim or in English, good and honorable. Okay? Some deacons don't know what to say, so they just they nod or they stay silent. But it should be good and honorable. Because some t- what happens if it wasn't wine? What happens if the person, and it's happened before, people put the wrong thing in? Little, let's go on a bit of a tangent. There's actually a rite called the liturgy of the restoration of the cup, which is if the priest comes to the end of the liturgy and realizes that the chalice all of a sudden broke, but some of them used to be glass, and the blood leaked, or it's not wine, it's oil or gas or something, then there's actually a small rite that he does where he gets a new chalice and he blesses that chalice. There's a, it's in one of the liturgy books, and it's called the liturgy of the restoration of the cup. I've only heard of it happen once, but I'm sure it's happened many times. So he gives it to everyone to smell. So he's making sure the wine is good wine. If he's not happy with it, he could ask it to be refilled. Right? And then watch, like, see what connection this has. He puts it in his left hand, name the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. And over the, all the gifts, blessed is God, the Father, the Pantocrator, Amen. 
Blessed be his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Blessed be the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete. Amen. Glory and honor, honor and glory to the All-Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, now and forevermore, unto the ages of ages. Amen. So what did the priest just do again? Glorification of the Holy Trinity. Okay. Then he says a part that he said before, which you'll find on page 107. Or 109, actually. He says, grant, he puts his hands out, grant, O Lord, that this sacrifice or our sacrifice may be accepted before you, points himself, for my own sins and then to the people and for the ignorance of your people. So grant, O Lord, that the sacrifice may be accepted before you for my own sins and for the ignorance of your people. So what's he saying? I'm the bad guy. I'm the sinner. The people didn't know what they were doing. They just made a mistake. So who's the bad person? The priest. And you see this theme running through the whole liturgy. He's bashing himself and he's making excuses for the people, right? For behold, it is pure according to the gift of your Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus our Lord, through whom the glory, the honor, dominion and worship are due unto you, with him and the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, who is of one essence with you, now all times unto the ages of ages. Amen. Again, glorification of the Holy Trinity. And then at this point, the priest will remember whoever has asked him to remember them. So, you, when you go to Abuna, Abuna, raise the offertory in my name. So this is when he'll remember it. Okay? Sometimes people send papers and he'll, he'll put, they put him in the, in the offertory. And he'll remember them. Okay? And then he crosses his arms like so and says, May the Lord choose for himself a lamb without blemish. Now the crossing of the arms reminds you of? Isaac and? Blessing Jacob. Blessing. Right? Now, this action here is supposed to happen in all, in most sacraments. So, for example, in confession, originally, the priest, sorry, Dave, will do this. That's how he wouldn't hold the cross. He would just put his hands like that. At a wedding, over the bride and groom, he would do this. At the unction of the sick, originally, sorry, Dave, you're going to be, if it's, if David is the sick person, he'll come to church and the priest will put the gospel and the cross like this. But if it's seven priests... The first priest will do this and then every other priest will come and put their hands like this on top of David. <laughs> and then the last, it's actually in the book, and then the last priest will come and put his cross like that. So this, so remember last week we said originally the, pri the cr priest wouldn't use the cross. The cross is the deacon's, the deacon would use the cross, but it depends which monastery you take the rites from. But this action here is a very common one in the sacraments. So he does this, may the Lord choose for himself a lamb without blemish. And then he examines the bread. Overall, if he's not happy, he could request for it to be baked again. I've only heard of it happen once in Melbourne. Um, you may know the person who did it, the Abuna. Um, lovely Holy Father. Um, no, he is. No, it's not, I'm not being stuck. He actually, I love him a lot. Like, um, but we must offer the best to God. Like, but usually it doesn't happen, right? And then he'll examine them. He always has the one that he prefers on his right. So what's he looking for? He's looking for the one that's most round, the one that's most evenly baked, the one that has the clearest stamp, the one that doesn't have any cracks. So he'll examine back and front and then say, I prefer this one. I'll cross them over and hold it in my right hand. Then I'll pick up the next one. Say, I prefer that one. I'll cross it over, put it in my right hand. Okay? So it has three, five or seven. You could look at symbolism for it, like Holy Trinity 3, the five, the sacrifices, 
Or you could say, one, con one contemplation that I heard is that it's an odd number because it's unique. So there's seven here, and you take one. Every other one has a pair, but this is unique. Okay. Uh, originally, as well, the bridge, it says uh, it should be the size of the priest's hand. Not much bigger. Something interesting. Yeah, so something interesting I just found out last week um, from a, an expert in this stuff is that, you know, now we have huge <laughs> breads in Egypt. He said there's actually a right in the church when there's a lot, of, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of people to bless more than one bread. And to, I never knew that. And to bless more than one cup. It's a very, it's, it's actually, there's a pr provision in that in the rites. But it's a Middle Evil text that maybe it's not used much anymore. But if the church wanted to, it could do that. Yeah. And then the priest grabs the veil. Oh, you guys could sit down now. Uh, you need to stand for one more part. Sorry. Thanks, Michael and David. Um, and then he grabs the veil and he wipes off any excess flour. Out of respect to the offering, he will never put it upside down. So you'll never see him do this. Okay? He'll go like this. All right? And then, out of respect again, he'll put the veil on his left, place it like so. Okay? And then, from the wine, he'll take a bit of the wine... And he'll say, a sacrifice of glory, and he'll do a cross. And then he'll cross the rest while saying, a sacrifice of blessing, a sacrifice of Abraham, Abraham, a sacrifice of Isaac, a sacrifice of Jacob, and then on the back of this one that is chosen, a sacrifice of Melchizedek. We're going to, find, we're going to talk about Melchizedek in a second. Okay? Are you guys with me? Melchizedek. Are you with me? Is that okay? So... A sacrifice of glory, a sacrifice of blessing, a sacrifice of Abraham, a sacrifice of Isaac, a sacrifice of Jacob. And if there's five, he'll just cross until he finishes the names. A sacrifice of Melchizedek. And then to the person in front of him, the deacons. That are, so right now, for example, what we do is if there's two priests, one priest will officiate, the other priest will present. But what's supposed to happen, and we just found this out last week as well from the same person that studied these things, he said the deacon should always present, no one else. Because the people pre uh, bring the gifts to the deacon to present to the priest. So what's supposed to happen is the priest stands and all the priests stand before, behind him and the deacon presents the gift. And then he, he says to the deacon, I have sinned, forgive me. And then the deacon, thanks Natari, the deacon places the basket aside and the priest then enters the sanctuary. Then he... I was just seeing if it says it here. Okay. Then he takes... So if you could please just go to page 110. Then he takes some water on his hand and he does this, right? Apparently. This was actually where he would wash his hands. People say this is the baptizing of the Lamb, right? Maybe we could say it reminds us of the baptism of Christ. But originally, this is where he would wash his hands. And all he would do is, just a little bit of water, hold the gift in his hand. And he would say again, depending on the right that you follow, grant her Lord that the sacrifice may be accepted before you for my own sins, for the of the people, etc. And then he says something beautiful in 110, which is abbreviated in this book. Here he remembers everyone. It says here, Remember, O Lord, your orthodox Christian servants, each one by his name and each one by her name. 
And here he would remember people by name. If you send the paper, he would stand and he would say your name. Right? Remember, O Lord. And then he prays for, and, and there's another line that he could say if someone is sick. And then he prays for his family. Remember, O Lord, my father, my mother, my brothers, and my kin in the flesh. And he could say his wife, of course, if he's, if he's a married <laughs> priest. Okay. And my spiritual fathers, by name. He would, he would mention them by name. Okay. The, the, oh, do they say their names? I'm not sure. That's a good one. I don't know. I should ask. Mm, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I could find out. So I would usually message Amphiphanes for things like that, but he's in heaven. You can't. Okay. Keep those who are living by the angel of peace and repose those who have departed. And then at the end, he talks about himself. Remember, uh, he prays for himself. Remember, O Lord, my weakness, even I, the poor, and forgive me my many sins. Look at how he speaks about himself. Look how he speaks about everyone else. Look about how he speaks about himself. Always humility. And then he wraps the bread in the veil. And he will now hold it up and say the next line. Now, of course, you would have seen the cross being held. It depends on where, which monastery's right you're following. There's diversity of rites, which is okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But apparently, the more ancient way is is no cross. The deacon uses the cross. The priest holds without the cross. Okay. That's the offertory in terms of what we do. Let's explain what it all means. Oh, we're getting close to time. Can we do five minutes or ten minutes? Or Sure. It's not like you're going to say no. So <laughs> I don't know why I even asked the question. Okay. All right. Let's... I'll try to go through it really quickly. And then for the rest, I'll, I'll leave for you to do. Okay. So the offertory is, has a deep theological significance. Originally, every person would need to bring a gift to the church. You would bake bread at home and bring bread. Okay? Women and children and men, everyone. Bake at home, bring your bread. You might bring wine. You might bring grapes. You might bring incense or candles or money. What if you were poor and you couldn't afford anything? Well, the church would have a fountain of water outside and you would bring in a cup of water. You would never appear in front of Christ empty. Let's read from Father Alexander Schmemann. A sacrifice, this, this is the offertory. The, the offertory is the sacrificial act of the church offering to God the oblation of our lives. Oh, I forgot. Before we get to that, please open page... Page 28. This is a litany which could be said in one of three places. Number one, in Matins. So if you come to Matins, you might hear this. Matins is the offering of incense prior to the divine liturgy. Part number two, it could be said privately by the priest or silently during the reading of the Catholicon, the Catholic epistle, if in Matins the gifts weren't there. So this section has to be prayed when the bread and wine are there. So say, for example, you prayed Matins and the bread hasn't arrived yet. You wouldn't pray this. You would wait until the Catholic horn and you would pray, the priest would pray it silently. Or in the liturgy of St. Cyril, which we pray here in Lent on Thursdays and Tuesdays, when, so St. Cyril is actually reserved for Lent, um, when the priest will pray out loud after the commemoration of the saints. It's one of the most beautiful prayers in the church and it has a beautiful tune in Coptic. If you're interested, I could send you a link. Very, It's very long, very... Not too much extension on the vows, but it's it's beautiful. Okay. 
So in this litany, it says here the litany for the sacrifices or litany for the oblations, the um, the priest uh, prays for those who have offered the gifts. Okay. So th these days, any gift is considered a gift. For example, like now because of the size of the church, if everyone brings bread, it's, it's a bit unreasonable. So people might donate flour, they might donate money to the church for its various initiatives. They might donate their time. They might donate something that they have. So it's all, everything's an offer tree. Look what he says. We ask and entreat your goodness, a lover of mankind. Remember, O Lord, the sacrifices, the offerings, and the thanksgivings. So this, this word thanksgiving now connects the offer tree with giving thanks. Of those who have offered to the honor and glory of your holy name. And then the deacon gives the people an instruction. Pray for those who provide for the sacrifices, the offerings, first fruits, so first fruits in Arabic is bukur. So for example, if you if you were growing something, then it's the season for it, you'll bring the first fruits to the church. Some people do that now. For example, if they get a new job, the first pay slip they will donate to the church or to the poor. First fruits, oil, incense, coverings, reading books, and altar vessels. So the deacon is asking us to pray for the people that take care of this. So what are you supposed to do at this part? Please God remember everyone who cares for this. And if you know someone by name, you should mention them by name. That Christ our God may reward them in the heavenly Jerusalem and forgive us our sins, Lord have mercy. Then the priest says, Receive them upon your holy, rational altar in heaven as a sweet savour of incense before your greatness in the heavens through the service of your holy angels and archangels. And then he remembers people in the Bible who offered. As you have received the gifts of the righteous Abel, the sacrifice of our father Abraham, and the two mites of the widow, so also receive the thank offerings of your servants. Those in abundance, so the people have offered to you from the, the, the heaps that they have, or those in scarcity, the pe people that didn't have much, and they just offered what they could. Hidden or manifest, the people that we know about and the people that we don't know about. Look, this is beautiful. Those who desire to offer to you but have none. So someone who really wishes to give something to Christ, but they just have nothing to give. Just the desire. And those who have offered these gifts to you this very day. And then this is beautiful. Give them the incorruptible instead of the corruptible. This really goes like very sharp teaching about how we're praying for heavenly rewards and not so much the earthly stuff. So some people, for example, say, we were talking about this yesterday, that if, if um, you're close to Christ, you'll be wealthy. You'll be successful because you're close to God. That's called the prosperity gospel. In short, but that's not really what it's not really the message of the gospel or um, present in the Orthodox Church. Look what we're praying for. Give them the incorruptible instead of corruptible, the heavenly instead of the earthly, the eternal instead of the temporal. But their houses and their stores fill them with every good thing. But we've prayed for the heavenly first. Surround them, O Lord, by the power of your holy angels and archangels, as you have as they have remembered your holy name on earth. Remember them also, O Lord, in your kingdom. And then this age too, leave them not behind. I know one of the youth who donates a tiny bit of incense when they can just because of this prayer. Okay? Just buy some incense to give it to church. Like, because this prayer says, pray for those who care for the incense. I'm going to bring some incense. Okay? Thanks, Mary. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. We're friends. All right. Should we wrap up? Finish off? Five minutes. So I just finish this this section here on this offertory. All right, Father Alexander Schmemann.
A sacrifice is the natural movement of love, which is the gift of oneself, a self-denial for the sake of the other. When I love somebody, my life is in him whom I love. I give him my life freely, willingly, joyfully, and this giving away becomes the very meaning of life. Now, this giving away of our life, don't think, oh, how can I do it? I'm, I'm, I'm not a monk. As we just saw with Amber Pifanius's quote, doesn't matter if you're a monk or if you're married or if you live in the desert or if you live in the middle of a city. You could offer the same way anyone else can. Christ sacrificed himself as a sacrifice of love. This perfect life as love and therefore as sacrifice, he gave to all who accept him and believe in him, restoring in them the initial relationship with God. The life of the church being his life in us and our life in him, thus is necessarily a sacrificial life, an eternal movement of love towards God. The essential attitude and the essential act of the church, which is the new humanity restored by Christ, is therefore the Eucharist, the act of love, thanksgiving and sacrifice. So what we do in the liturgy is the central act of Christianity. The bread and the wine stand for us. Food. Food gives you life. Well, makes you live. So when we offer food, it stands for us offering our life to God. So every time you come to the offertory, it's a renewing of, I offer my life to God. Footnote, this is why we should never ask, what time does the gospel start? Okay? You get what I mean? All right. For our life, for the whole of our existence, for the entire world created by God for us. They are our food. Our food makes us live. It is that which becomes our body. By offering it to God, by sacrificing it to Him, we show that our life is given away to Him, that we follow Christ, our head, in His movement of total love and sacrifice. Let us stress again, our sacrifice in the Eucharist is not distinct from that of Christ. It's not a new sacrifice. Christ offered Himself once and for all, and His sacrifice, being full and perfect, makes any new sacrifice needless. But it is precisely the meaning of our Eucharistic offering that in it we are given the priceless possibility of entering in Christ's sacrifice or being participants in his unique offering of himself to God. So what he's trying to say is, when every time we have a liturgy, it's not like Christ is sacrificed again and again and again and again. And in, in, Austra in Australia, if you have, say, 15 liturgies in one day across the various churches, it doesn't mean that there are 15 Christs being sacrificed. It's one sacrifice that happened once. But when we do it in the liturgy, we are participating in that one sacrifice. Or in other terms, his unique and perfect sacrifice has made it possible for us, the church, his body, to be restored and readmitted into the fullness of true humanity, the sacrifice of praise and love. The one who has not understood the sacrificial character of the Eucharist, who has come to receive but not to give, has not accepted the very spirit of the church. So in the liturgy, like we said last week, it's not about me. It's about God. I'm here to offer. I'm not here to take. I offer, and then at the end, God gives me. He, I put out my hand, and the olden church used to put out your hand, and then you receive the body of Christ. But we have to offer first. Which is above everything else, the acceptance of and the participation in Christ's sacrifice. Thus, in the procession of offertory, our very life is being brought to the altar, presented to God in an act of love and adoration. What this means practically is every time you're at the offertory, it's a perfect opportunity to pray and offer in prayer your life again to God. So you could offer specific things. Lord, I offer you my worry about such and such. I'm offering it to you, meaning that I'm leaving it in God's hands, and then I'm going to walk out of church 
the situation might still exist, but I have been changed. Kronos and Kairos. I've actually heard about the word Kairos, but I've never looked into it. Can you explain it to us? Yeah. <laughs> um, so Kronos time is the time that we normally know. Yeah. Yesterday was yesterday, today is today, tomorrow is tomorrow, and the sequence of events occurs. Kairos time is um, uh, an, an example that you would use in Kairos time is when you share a moment. Mm. When you have that moment, you have no perception of time. Like if you're watching a movie that you're really engrossed in, two hours goes like that. But if you're So we are actually at the Last Supper, yeah, right. not symbolically. Yeah. 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 Very nice. Thanks, Travis. It's beautiful. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's very nice. Thank you. There's a, f- a bit more here on the sacrifice, but I don't think we have time to go through it. I'll leave you to read it, um, and I'll leave you to read the part on Melchizedek. Um, Mm, and there's a bit on the church as well, but we won't read that part today. <laughs> really bad time management with me today. Um, but I guess the key thing here is the offertory is a key part of the, the liturgy. And in it, we offer the bread and wine as our life. And we could actually participate in that every week by being at the offertory and offering to God our life through prayer. And this act of sacrifice is really important. I'll just finish with one quick thing. Do you know, in the um, talking about sacrifice... And how it connects with love. In the Gospel of John, at the end, when Peter, Christ says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? What does Peter reply? Sorry? Let, let's actually take out the actual text. Because the third time he says it, it's, he says something really, really important. So, it's found at the end of the Gospel of St. John. Okay, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said, Lord, he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. So he asked him the first time. The second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? But didn't he say that two times? So why is he grieved this time? He was grieved because he said to him the third time, you love me. Not, not he was grieved because he asked three times. He was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Why was he upset the third time? If you, um, if you Google Greek interlinear Bible, John chapter 21, and you look at this text and look at the word love, when Christ says love, he uses the word agapi, which means sacrificial love. Peter replies with another word for love, which is philo, which is affectionate love, friendly love, love that we have together. Agapi love is sacrificial Christ-like love. So if we read it, replacing the words with the words in the, the Greek New Testament. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I philo you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I philo you. He said to me, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you philo me? So he changed. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you philo me? So Christ went to his level. And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I feel you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most ass- and then next two verses. Most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. What's he talking about? How he died. How do we know that? But the next verse. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So how has he, so Christ went to his level, said, do you feel like me? I was upset. Simon Peter's upset. He said, yes, Lord, you know all things I feel like you. And then Christ is trying to say, but you will agape me. And what analogy does he use for agape or story? When he will die. So when we say we love God, what does that mean? If I say I agape Christ, it is sacrifice. It is the cross. And like we were talking about yesterday, that's not something that sells tickets, if you get what I mean, yeah? <laughs> if you want to use that language. But that's the message of the gospel. And if you look at St. Paul, and please watch the St. Paul movie, if you haven't yet, of course read St. Paul. But St. Paul's <laughs> movie obviously encapsulates this. Message of the gospel, Christ crucified and risen. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I will not boast in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ. Hmm. He restores him. Yeah. Like I say, it's the restoration of Peter. But this, this offer, the offer tree reminds us of sacrifice. Okay. Let's stop there. Sorry, I really went over time. Forgive me, but we're not even halfway through the, the handout. Um, but maybe read the rest at home. It talks a little bit about. Um, has some ch- uh, quotes from the Church Fathers about bread and wine. It has a section about Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? It has a section from the Tazbeha, the Midnight Praises, the Sunday Theotokeia, which talks about Christ as a sacrifice. And then at the end, there's a section about the Church. You could leave that. We could talk about that next week. Glory be to God, forever and ever. Amen. Yeah.